Welcome to the show, folks. It is Tuesday. I am David Hansen. On today's episode, we are looking back to the interview that Motley Fool co-founder and CEO Tom Gardner had with Jack Bogle, the founder of the Vanguard Group. This is part one of that interview. So uh, 39 years ago, almost to the day, a little bit longer than 39 years ago, you started the Vanguard Group. Uh, Jack Bogle, one of our heroes at The Motley Fool for so many different reasons, which will come out hopefully in our conversation. I mean, it starts with simplicity and clarity, integrity, and a solution that is transparent in a financial industry that works so hard against those qualities, it seems, many times, it seems. So what was life like for you in 1974? Can you paint a little bit of the picture of what Vanguard was then compared to what it is today? Well, sure, and uh, it, this will not be very surprising anybody that's ever started what we call in the modern age, didn't use the term then, a disruptive technology. <laughs> and uh, we were shrinking. We had about, when we, when we finally broke up the Wellington Management Company into certain operating units and Vanguard took over the administration, uh, we were going downhill. One of the directors said, Bogle, do you realize we're hemorrhaging? Realize that we had money pouring out, more money going out than, than coming in for 83 months. So you've got to be kind of blind, you've got to be kind of stupid, uh, and you've got to think that it's great news when a month's cash flow goes from $20 million out to $19 million out. <laughs> Everybody condemned uh, the index fund. Uh, Ned Johnson said, uh, our shareholders would never want a fund with average performance. Mere average. And by the way, that was the year 1970 six probably, when all the Fidelity funds had fallen out of bed and they weren't getting anything like average performance, by the way, just for the record. And, uh, and for whatever that, uh, I don't know, philosophical bent was on his part, nice enough to say, they now have a $150 billion index fund business. Mm -hmm. So you've seen this huge swing. Mm -hmm. Help stamp out index funds. Bam, 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 that big Wall Street poster. Mm -hmm. uh, everything was negative. Uh, the Wellington Fund had been about destroyed by, by our um, partners from Boston from an investment standpoint. Fund dropped, that was our kind of the flagship of the Vanguard fleet, uh, dropped from $2.1 billion to $400 million. The performance was the worst in the industry for any balanced fund. There wasn't a lot of good news around. All the funds that were part of the merger went out of business. Ivest Fund finally, funds that people had never heard of the dustbin of history, we say, one called Technovest, using technical market analysis, yes, Wellington brought out such a fund. And a fund for trustees called Trustees Equity Fund, the first one. And uh, it crumpled like tissue paper in a fire, <laughs> to, to pick a metaphor. <laughs> so everything was bad. You had to know you were right in the long run. You had to know the gross return in the financial markets, minus cost equals net return. <laughs> Pretty smart here. <laughs> That's the underlying principle. And you also, this is, and I didn't really phrase it this way in those days, Tom, but uh, when you think about it, we're all indexers. Every investor in America is an indexer because 25, 30%, let's call it 25% is indexed but the other 75% own the index, but one at a time. Mm. I mean, that's the total market. Mm -hmm. And if you have the total stock market fund, you either own it as a unity, or you own little chunks of it, mm. 
and somebody else owns the rest. Mm -hmm. So will, will the unity, let's call it the unity business of the index fund, do better than the trading business with all these other people that own the index trading with one another and try and, and, try and out, outpace them, which of course can't be true. Mm -hmm. And they pay their little helpers, mm -hmm. and therefore they, had, they have to lose. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's all so clear that it is a dis disruptive technology and that it works. But any time you try and introduce a new idea, you know, first it's, it'll never work. Mm -hmm. Then it'll work, but only for a short time. Then the guy's really lucky. And finally, you know, he's right. <laughs> Do you think during the guy's really lucky phase, or is there a phase in there where it is the guy's a threat and we're going to say whatever we can to confuse people about the solution that he's putting in the market? Well, they can try that, but it's too late for that. It's too late. You know, I, in, in the last five years, roughly, uh, $400 billion has gone out of actively managed funds and $600 billion has gone into index funds. Uh, it's a trillion dollar swing. Just for the equity part of the business is probably around, I don't know, six or seven trillion. It's a huge swing in five little years. So the market is responding. Uh, the Even the people that, that don't like it at all are doing it because the client insists on it. And uh, part of the insistence has gone in the wrong direction. And uh, that is, we have the ETF, which is a way of trading the index fund all day long in real time. Mm -hmm. What kind of a nut would do that? Well, there are a lot of nuts out there though, right? I mean, even though there's been a tremendous growth in index fund assets, simultaneously there's been a complete diminishment of long-term investment as a principle that is both um, adhered to by individuals, by professionals, covered in the financial media uh, that way. Um, the average holding period for a stock or a fund or the holdings within an actively managed fund's turnover ratio is, you know, north of 100%. Used to yeah, be. It's actually much higher than that when you look at the cost of it because that's the lesser of portfolio sales and purchases uh, that you count as the, as the amount of turnover and then divided into the assets of the fund. And the fact is, whether it's more or less or even the same, you've got those two sets of transactions. You take money out of a stock, that costs money and you put money back into another stock and that costs money. So the costs are very, very high. The unit costs, in fairness, costs for trading a, a share, mm -hmm. used to maybe 30 cents, 25 cents in the old days, mm -hmm. and, and now they're probably less than a penny. Mm -hmm. But if you're trading, I don't know, is there anything? Times, is there anything good, about, anything good about trading, in your opinion? Well, yeah, I think the market needs a certain amount of liquidity, mm -hmm. and I accept that. But how much liquidity do we need? Do we really need the market to turn over 250% a year? Mm -hmm. well, I grew up in this business, there wasn't a liquidity problem, and the turnover was 25% <laughs> a year. So I've been known to say, you'll like this expression, uh, taking on or, or, or copying Samuel Johnson on what he said about patriotism, liquidity is the last refuge of the scoundrel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the scoundrel is transacting that frequently because What's motivating them? It's human nature and they're blind to what they're doing or there's a built-in conflict of interest that's causing a professional to transact either in their retail client accounts or for reasons inside their fund. Well, first, there's a lot of ego out there. Mm -hmm. uh, even someone you know has a pretty big ego, but he doesn't use it on saying I'm smarter than other investors. Mm -hmm. But uh, we all think we're, we're smarter than the other guy. We all think we're better drivers. 
Sometimes I think we all think we're better lovers. I don't know about that. <laughs> but, you know, we're all average. We know that. And uh, have to be and will be. And no Lake Wobegon here in the investment business. And then we have this massive marketing machine of paid salesmen uh, who can always beat the index. Because if you've got a universe of 500 funds and someone says, the index, I want the index because it does better, your problem is you're looking at the average fund. I will give you a fund that's above average. And uh, it's always easy to do, very easy to do. You know, for some period, for some fund, it's the easiest thing in the world to do. Mm -hmm. So the, the sales machine, uh, and they have conviction they're doing the right thing, but they've got to know deep down they're not doing the right thing. And now, I, there, are, there have to be some that you believe are doing the right thing on the active management side. There have to be some investors that you've encountered over time that you think it's admirable what they're doing and actually the results, so insofar as we can draw a conclusion off of a single sample of one person's lifetime, appear to be above average sustainably. Well, I'm not sure above average is, is quite the standard, and that's a really tough standard to meet. Mm -hmm. But you can do a perfectly good job, uh, and the managers I like, and uh, I, I don't hesitate to say who they are, uh, you, can, you can look at uh, Dodge and Cox, mm -hmm. uh, and you can look at, um, what the hell is the name of that place, Mike, down there? Longleaf. Long yeah, love that. You can look at clip that out. Oh, look well, at, oh we're going to know. We're going to push the volume up on that. <laughs> uh, and you can look at Longleaf. And, and there are probably a number of other small yeah. firms. Yeah. What is their, uh, what, what is, what's so good about them? They are in the business of investment management and not in the business of marketing. Mm -hmm. This has become a great big marketing business. Mm -hmm. And they stick to their guns and they manage money. They slip. They stumble. They err. They make mistakes. This is a business for all that. But in the long run, I would bet on someone whose business is trying to be a professional investor, not a trader, someone whose business is trying to serve you rather than serve the marketplace. So there aren't a lot of them. And uh, you know, I, I don't want to put a curse on them because they'll get too big and they won't be able to do it anymore. And that's, the, that's a little uh, one of the great secrets of this business. And that is if you're really good for a long enough time, you draw an awful lot of money, and then you can't be good anymore. Mm -hmm. Too big to succeed. Too big to succeed. Or as Warren says, Warren Buffett says, a fat wallet is the enemy of superior returns. Mm -hmm. And of course it is. So if you can get someone that can give an index a good run for its money, I wouldn't say you're going to do a lot better. I don't think they would say you're going to do a lot better. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's a good alternative because you don't have all this infinite number of choices. You know, I think Longleaf probably runs let me say four or five funds. Dodge and Cox runs five, I think. And uh, yet the rest of us run, Fidelity runs 260 funds. Mm -hmm. Vanguard runs, I think it's around 170. I'm not sure anybody really knows. And uh, that's tough on a whole lot of levels. Can you describe fundamentally how an index fund works? For somebody who is watching and owns a Vanguard index fund, how's the, how does the process work behind the scenes? Is it, is it um, five robots? <laughs> three, three monkeys and, uh, and a bunch of data? Or are there human choices that are going into the index? Well, first, you can, you can match the index in a very casual way. Just, I mean, by if, if um, I don't know, Microsoft is 2% of the index, you just put 2% of the portfolio in Microsoft. Uh, pretty, and, and then the same thing is true of every other fund. Not very complicated. And if you don't do it with great professional skill, all kinds of quantitative support, 
you will do a perfectly good job, but not a perfect traffic tracking job. In the long run, you'll match the index, but you might beat the index by 50 basis points, half of 1% in a year, and lose to it by half a percent in another year. The tolerance is very small. But people like to see, or investors like to see, a tight tracking. And so you do all these quantitative things. They're, they're definitely called for, called for you know, quantitative mathematical skills, uh, particularly when they're additions to the index or subtractions. That happens more in the Standard & Poor's 500 than in the total stock market. Uh, but um, it's really, it's a very simple thing conceptually, but to do it with something that approaches perfection is just what you say. A lot of quantitative uh, people hidden behind the hidden behind the walls. If we if we take the concept of too big to succeed and apply it to capitalization weighted index fund, isn't that a bad idea? Wouldn't it be better to set the index fund up on a different set of criteria rather than weighting it by capitalization? Aren't we buying the largest companies and the most successful companies which have the smallest future market opportunity and and underweighting the small potentially upstart disruptive future vanguards? Well, you're saying that cap weighting indexes are give you a flawed index, in effect. And uh, I guess my first comment would be, uh, since such an index beats the heck out of money managers, uh, what kind of trouble would be would we be in if they if there were a perfect index? <laughs> so, uh, and, and then I'd also say, much more importantly than that, and that is. If the idea of indexing, as Paul Samuelson described it when he wrote the foreword to my first book, uh, was you will uh, get better returns than your neighbors and sleep better than your neighbors. And your neighbors own the capitalization weighted index. Now, will a value weighted index do better? Will a dividend weighted index do better? Probably it will do better some of the time. I do not believe it will do better in the long run. That remains to be seen. But when you think about it, uh, if, let's say, fundamental indexing, whatever that means exactly, but awaiting by some company uh, corporation data rather than by market price, still owns essentially all the stocks that the S&P 500 owns, which is somewhat different weights. Not huge, but somewhat different weights. So uh, they may do better, they may do worse. But if they continue to do better, well, what will happen? Everybody will take their money out of the market-weighted index and put it into the value-weighted index, and then the opportunity will vanish. Hmm. That's the way the markets work. Hmm. I don't think it's going to work, hmm. and I don't think that it's worthwhile to add that risk. You know, I know what I can get. I can do better than my neighbors. Hmm. I can own the whole market. That's a little beyond the S&P, but it's a perfectly way, good way of looking at it. Uh, do better than my neighbors, and should I give that, let's call it certainty of relative return, up for the uncertainty of whether one of these schemes that's out there, equal weighting, value weighting, dividend weighting, fundamental <laughs> weighting, all kinds of weighting. I kind of feel like equal weighting is not, would be a, would be a smart, but I guess time will tell whether that Well, it, it works sometimes. I mean, we have yeah. data going back forever, but don't let the past data impress you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when people start actually doing these things, you know this from your own experience, that what comes out of the lab is seldom reflected in the real world. Mm -hmm. How many mutual funds of, a, of an index variety, let's say somebody's indexing entirely, um, how many funds should they own as an individual? What's too many and what's too few? Well, you can certainly do it with one. Mm -hmm. And that would be something like the Vanguard Balanced Index Fund. Mm -hmm. It's 60% uh, total stock market, 40% mm 
40% total bond market, both U.S., mm -hmm. and that's fine. So a, a person out there could simplify their lives, make sure they're paying off all their high interest debt, it's gone, they're saving a portion of their salary each year, and they're putting it all in the Vanguard balanced, balanced index fund. Right. And that three-step approach is gonna improve the outcomes for the majority of investors out there, number one, and you think it's completely um, reasonable to put it all in a single fund. Well, I, there are obviously a lot of nuances here, and one of them is, uh, if you're younger, I would think you'd wanna be 80 or 85% equities. Okay, yeah. And if you're older, I would think, although interest rates are so terrible today, you have to rethink all these things mm -hmm. as the markets change, mm -hmm. but older, maybe 25% mm -hmm. uh, equities and 75% bonds, something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are, this is kind of an age-based your bond position should equal your age, mm -hmm. but that's a rule of thumb. And interestingly enough, it shows a gap in the kind of the way these target date funds are, that are very popular today are structured because they ignore the fact that 85% of their shareholders have social security. Mm -hmm. And a social security, when you begin it, has a capitalized value of maybe the stream of future payments you will get is capitalized at around, let me say $350,000. If you have $350,000 totally invested in an equity index fund, you're 50, 50. Mm -hmm. now, you don't look at it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and your behavior mm -hmm. may get you in trouble that way because I got too much in stocks. Mm -hmm. But what people should be doing, honestly, Tom, is stop looking at the silly stock market every day and look at the cash flow they get. And in, in, in a uh, Social Security, those payments are going to continue. They're going to grow with the cost of living. Uh, I'm, I'm certain, as certain as I can be, the Social Security will be repaired simply because it has to be. And I, I don't think its future is in doubt. Mm. If we can just wake up a few of those people down in the nation's capital. Mm. And uh, for stocks, uh, you probably want to look at more of a dividend bias. You could buy a high yield dividend index instead of the total stock market index if capital flows. Mm. And that dividend, if you look at the stream of dividends, it makes the stock market look violently volatile. The dividend stream goes up, up, up. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is there have only been two significant dividend cuts uh, since 1925. Mm -hmm. One was in 29-32, and the other was a few years ago, 2007, 2009, when all the financial companies pretty much eliminated their dividends. Mm -hmm. We've already recovered from that. Mm -hmm. That's over. We're on the S&P, Standard & Poor's Index is, is paying more dividend now than it was before the drop. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, all of these things are uh, clear in the past, and in a lot of ways that doesn't matter. But if you assume that American business grows, that America grows, uh, that the dividend stream will keep going up. And as, as uh, people ask all the time, uh, corporations have got huge amounts of cash. Mm -hmm. So dividends should not be uh, jeopardized, absent some real problem in the in the world and in the economy. And people should be aware of that. You know, there's nothing is a lead pipe cinch in this world. But you have, actually, it's sort of amusing. You have a couple of big risks out there. Um, you know, you know about the economy, you know about it, uh, the international kind of hanging on by its own. You know about the, do do the dollar, you know about the Federal Reserve buying all those securities and trying to bid the prices up of, of assets, not a particularly wise move. And uh, you have to assess those risks and try to make some kind of a judgment, however difficult, about uh, how they come out. But you also have to realize a couple of things. Well, that's the second set of risks is 
really the incomprehensible risks like nuclear warfare mm -hmm. or a, a, a meteor meteorite hits the U.S. Mm -hmm. Well, or robots, robots robot begin to any. control our society. It, 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 it won't matter whether you have stocks or bonds or anything else. So, club, yeah. you'll need a club. Yeah, you just just yeah. a club. So there are all kinds of big and small risks. Yeah. But as I've often said, uh, you know, we're sitting here knowing where the world is going into a the hell in a handbasket. Uh, but people have been worried about that since the beginning. The knowns are not the yeah, the, the known fears are not the ones to. Yeah. Really, really fear. And so, so are you? And by the way, Jack, I, I truly can't believe that you're 84 years old. Are you 84 percent in bonds? Uh, no. Okay. No. Yeah. So you're violating your advice. Well, yeah. Actually, I'm kidding. Well, you know, it's by rule of thumb. Yeah. And of course, at 84, your Social Security doesn't have a capitalized value of $350,000 either. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I like the next check to come in. My wife doesn't think we should take the checks, but you know we postponed them till we were 70. And we really got a nice, I can live on what I get from Social Security, because mm -hmm. <laughs> we live in a fairly modest way, modern, well, modest by the standards, of, very modest compared by the standards of what you see in the financial world and mm -hmm. corporate world. But uh, pretty, pretty nice compared to the typical American mm -hmm. worker. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, it, you, know, you start with a rule of thumb. Uh, and then you work back for, and you work back, and then you got to think about. And I don't know, I haven't figured out, Tom, how to do it. But when I first introduced this rule, I can remember back in 1999 at Morningstar, uh, I told them that I was uh, reducing my uh, equity position from about 75 percent of of my holdings to, I think, 30 percent of my holdings. Uh, because the stock market was selling at 35 times earnings, and the bond market was yielding 7%. And I looked at the transcript a while back, and I said, you know, honestly, when I look at the math, I don't see why, anybody hold, why I would hold any stocks at all, because at 30 times, 35 times earnings, stocks were not going to give you a 7% return in the first decade of the 20th century. And now you look at the numbers, and you're not really sure what to do about them. Well, now, you know, my own position is that stocks are more or less fairly valued, probably a little on the high side, but, you know, more like, depending on whose number you're using, 15 to 17 times earnings, maybe 18 times earnings. It's a long way from 35, half. And bonds are not yielding seven. They're yielding, depending on what you want to look at, 3%, 2.5%, 3.5%, depending on corporate government mix, maturities, and things of that nature. So you have to think a little bit differently. But I have not done anything about that. I, am, I don't change my portfolio. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I want to um, talk a little bit about financial advice and how that side of the business works because Vanguard um, has, is at least perceived to, to be exclusively a mutual fund company. So a lot of individuals are trying to figure out how to put a portfolio together. It's helpful to hear the number of funds that you would put into a an account for an individual, and it's relatively small and should be manageable and decision that an individual can make on their own. But yet many people come to their finances and say, you know, please, Jack, just just, just do it for me. Like, I'll, I'll literally give you the authority to make all transactions in my account. I don't want to know anything about it, which of course sets up a lot of people to be taken advantage of by, by financial advisors. So what, what do you think of the financial advice side of, of the um, decision-making process for well, first, uh, let me just take this, maybe you think it's kind of a nuance, but uh, I got a letter from a shareholder the other day 
saying, you keep telling me you only need three or four funds, why do you have 170? And I took the simple example for him. We have like 60 bond funds, 60. Why is that? Well, we, for, we invented or created or developed a system of you tell us the maturity, how much risk and how much income you want. So you get short, medium, and long, and also a couple of variations around that. And then in the municipal area, you only have the funds themselves, but you do in different states. And uh, then we get some bond index funds, and we probably have 60 bond funds out there. So an investor either has to know and uh, you know, do the math, should he be in municipal bonds or in, uh, in uh, taxable bonds? Very important decision. And right now, municipal bonds look very attractive simply on the numbers, those kind of numbers. Mm -hmm. And then you have to decide how you want to balance risk and return. Obviously, the highest, higher yields, no matter how depressed they are, are in long bonds, but the greatest risk is there. Mm -hmm. And the lowest yield is in short, but the, 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 the greatest principal stability is there. So those are decisions investors really have to think a little bit about. Mm -hmm. It's not just, I mean, you, buy, you can buy the bond index to be sure, and that turns out to be an intermediate-term bond fund, in mm -hmm. fact, mm -hmm. and that's perfectly satisfactory. But the, you know, we kind of nuanced ourselves to death a little bit, and uh, you know, you don't, you should, in terms of taxable and tax exempt, uh, deal with that issue. Mm -hmm. And I'd say to simplify, most investors should be in tax exempt, mm -hmm. uh, just because the, the, they yield significantly more than treasuries, uh, even before you take account the tax exemption. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I think they're attractive, and maybe you want some treasuries there as your bulwark, and you can buy a treasury bond fund, and it gets to be a little nuanced. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the interesting question is, if you want financial advice, how much should you pay for it? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, let me give you an interesting little piece of math. I look at the stock market investment return as a 2% dividend yield at the present time, low but not nearly as low as the 1% we want, and a 5% earnings growth. That's a 7% investment return, and over the next 10 years, I don't think it's going to go up because of higher PEs. Mm -hmm. We're down because of lower PEs, not down much anyway. And uh, so there won't be any speculative return, by my reckoning. Mm -hmm. So we've got 7%. Mm -hmm. That's nominal. Uh, and so we go to real. And if we're lucky enough to get 2% inflation, that's 5. And a typical fund manager is taking 2. That's 3. And if you give a, if you give a of 1% to an investment advisor, that's a third of three, and you're down to two. And uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you're a fund picker, you, use, you lose around 2% by jumping on the latest bandwagon. And 2% two, two minus two is a number that I won't recalculate for your audience. <laughs> well, it's a reminder of Warren Buffett saying that the financial services industry is an extractive. Sure. We call the, the economists call it rent-seeking industry. Of course it is. It has to be. And it has to shrink. It has to get its cost down. The trading volume has to come down. And a lot of mutual funds are going to have to fight. They're going to be cash cows. The big mutual fund companies are fantabulously profitable. Mm -hmm. And uh, they can't change what they're doing and do what we do because they would not be profitable to their owners, mm -hmm. either financial conglomerates or all those partners at Capital Group or the Johnson family up at Fidelity. I mean, their, their wealth is like 20 billion or something, putting the family all together. They've done great in this business. Whether their shareholders have done great is the question that interests me. That's where we should be focused. And the financial conglomerates, the same thing. They basically tried to destroy this industry. Uh, they own 30 of the 40, large, uh, 40 of the 50 
40 of the 50 largest fund groups are, are publicly held, and mostly 30, 30 of them by financial conglomerates. And think about buying a fund that's run by a financial conglomerate. Why did they buy their way into this industry? And why the are there Galconda, more funds? The Golconda. They wanted to jump on the wealth bandwagon of managing money. And they will accomplish that, whether by hook or by crook. If their return capital threshold is, uh, is at 15% and they pay a billion dollars uh, for a mutual fund company, they're going to have to take out $150 million a year. And it's easy. And all kinds of things you can do to make you're, it. You're a fan of capitalism. Um, so if we look in the marketplace in finance and compare two actors out on the stage, one of them is a fee-only fiduciary financial planner with a basic flat fee dollar amount that sits down and builds a Vanguard-based indexed low-cost portfolio acting as a fiduciary. The other is a financial advisor or broker. Um, I'm reminded of three that came to a book signing in, our, in San Diego years ago of ours and said, you know, you talk about the Vanguard Index Fund. It's really funny to say that. We now manage money. We've left the firm that we were at. In, in their case, they were at Merrill. And they said, we couldn't own, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't sell the index fund to our clients because we couldn't make any money on it. But we all owned it ourselves. So it's almost the, it's the complete reversal of the fiduciary. It's like, I'm, I will be fiduciary for myself. And then fiduciary with my relationship with you is, hey, if you buy it, if you're willing to buy what I'm selling, then I haven't done anything that I should feel badly about. So the reality, though, in the marketplace is that the first actor, the fee-only financial fiduciary, is living a relatively lean you know, existence in terms of the financial makeup. And the VP of the big investment firm has a country house, is making a million dollars a year selling load funds and a whole bunch of booby traps in the portfolio to keep you locked into different products. So how do you, how do you observe and what conclusions do you draw about capitalism given that? Given that? Well, capitalism is very funny, has a very funny manifestation when you get to the fiduciary duty of managing other people's money. You know, it, 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 most systems, particularly when you begin with a new idea, for example, uh, if you want to get it sold, you pay the salesman a lot of money, you advertise a lot, and you deliver 70 cents in the dollar or something like that. In, and in the investment business, the investment business is really a, uh, a business of sort of mathematical candor. You can't hide. You know, if you're selling a Mercedes-Benz, salesman is selling it, he's going to say, look at the value you get. Your neighbors are going to be envious, blah, 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 whatever it is. And you'll like the diesel fuel or the door slams nicely or it's got a great sound system or with air conditioning, I don't know what. Uh, but in the financial business, value is one thing, dollars. It can be measured, unlike all these esoteric things that characterize capital. And once you get to measuring value, the problem becomes a very simple mathematical problem. Now, how do you get people to focus on that is a good question. How do you get them to focus on the role of cost in that is a good question. How do you get them to think about the long term? Because in two or three or four years, the difference in cost, let's face it, just doesn't matter. But over your investment lifetime, getting the market return in an index fund or almost the full market return, compared to paying 2%, which is roughly the right number for, for a managed fund, uh, means that you get, in the latter case, about 30 cents in the dollar that you get in the end. 30 cents. But you've got to look at 40 or 50 years. But these young people today, say they're 25, 50 years is 75. 
that's too short. They'll live to 95. They should be looking at 70 years. And these numbers just get further and further apart. So, you know, you do need, a lot of people need help. There's no question about that. Uh, but I think we have to rethink how we pay for that help. You know, maybe the 1% is much too high. Uh, all of 1%, if, if you have a client with $25,000, 1% probably isn't nearly enough. So I think eventually you'll have a fee-for-service kind of thing, like a like typical professional service, lawyers, accountants, and so on. Neither profession of which I'm particularly smitten with uh, the, uh, have gone that way. That's the way they conduct their business. And it's, it's more of a professional approach than a business approach. But don't try and get me to tell you there are easy answers to this. You need help out there. People need their hands held. There's no question about that. And uh, paying a little bit for it is probably better than doing nothing. Uh, just trying to do it yourself. And the worst thing of all is not investing at all. Mm -hmm. That is the one guarantee we have in the financial business. Well, we are actually two. One is if you buy the index fund, you'll get the market return. And guarantee two is if you don't invest, you will get nothing. That is our show for today. We'll be back tomorrow with part two of this interview. We'll see you then.